Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a drash by Pressman Academy's head of school, Dr. Erica Rothblum. This summer, I really got into the show alone, thank you to the recommendation of Ephraim and Rachel Weber Falkowitz. For those of you who have not seen the show, the premise is that 10 people are dropped in the middle of nowhere. Vancouver Island, the Arctic, Patagonia, with just 10 tools of survival from an approved list of 40. They need to build their own shelters, they need to catch their own food, they need to create their own warmth, and the person who survives the longest wins $500,000. I've watched five seasons of the show so far. My viewing has slowed down considerably since school began, though I have high hopes of finishing through season nine by the end end of winter break. I absolutely love watching the contestants set traps for their food. I totally judge the design of their shelters. And I'm really in awe of the contestants' survival skills. In one case, a woman got bitten by a poisonous spider and the infection was spreading to her leg. She was dizzy, lightheaded, and the prognosis the captions on the TV told me was that she could die. There is no question that at that point I would have called the rescue team. I would have looked at the camera, kind of shrugged, as like, what did you expect me to do? Of course I'm going home. In contrast, this woman found a local plant, ground it into paste, spread it on her leg, and drew the poison out of her in order to continue for another several weeks in the wilderness. The thing that strikes me each season, however, even more than the contestants who draw poison out of their own bodies with plants, is how they ultimately are defeated more from loneliness than they are from hunger or cold. They might lose 30 to 50 pounds, their shelter might go up in flames, they may receive daily frights from black bears and moose and wild boar, And while some people do leave because they're hungry and some contestants are ultimately forced to leave because the producers decide it's no longer healthy for them to compete, the majority of people leave simply because they miss the people they love. Being isolated for so long, being lonely and homesick is too much for them. The loneliness impacts their mental health and they need to leave the game. There are a lot of things right now that are impacting people's mental health. There are some of the obvious factors. Social media and the internet has certainly exacerbated mental health challenges. Excessive internet use can lead to depression and loneliness. Social media can increase our anxiety as we compare our real lives to other people's social media curated life. We feel like we're the only ones not taking a vacation, or it seems like we're the only one whose child acts out, or we see that we're the only one not invited to the party. The feelings of depression and anxiety that can come from social media and internet usage are real. Current events have certainly impacted many people's states of mental health. Stories about climate change, about war, about politics. Probably the best illustration of the despair and anxiety people might feel about current events was illustrated by Tina Fey in an appearance on Saturday Night Live in 2017 following the events in Charlottesville. Tina brings out a sheet cake and proceeds to shovel large amounts of cake into her mouth while ranting about current events and screaming in response to the news. And she reports, sheet caking is a grassroots movement. 
Most of the women I know have been doing it once a week. And when you feel powerless, that's when you dip your grilled cheese into the cake. And certainly the pandemic has shifted mental health. In a study by the Harvard Graduate School of Education in February of 2021, 36% of respondents reported serious loneliness. Feeling lonely frequently or almost all the time or all the time in the four weeks prior to the survey. And 43% of young adults reported increases in loneliness since the outbreak of the pandemic. And while feeling lonely is bad enough on its own, feeling lonely is also linked to early mortality and a wide array of serious physical and emotional problems, including depression, anxiety, heart disease, substance abuse, domestic abuse, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy warned that Americans are facing an epidemic of loneliness and social isolation. These trends are not just in adults. As an educator, I'm grounded in research around child and adolescent mental health. The American Academy of Pediatrics has called the current state of adolescent mental health a crisis. Depression rates in teenagers increased 60% from 2007 to 2019 and suicide has become the second leading cause of death in people aged 10 to 24. All of this information could feel upsetting, it could make us feel hopeless, but despite these factors that are conspiring against us, despite these forces that we need to battle on a daily basis, I do believe that Judaism and this week's Parsha offer us an antidote to the plague of these mental health ailments. In the Parsha, we're commanded that all of Israel is to come together once every seven years to hear the Torah read out loud. The Torah states specifically that everyone is to come, men, women, children, the stranger, so that everybody can learn together and hear it together. There's a lot of discussion on why children, even the youngest of children, would be included. According to Maimonides, the essential element of the event is not actually hearing the Torah and understanding it, Participation in the gathering is designed to create a strong emotional response among those assembled. It would have been logistically much easier to say people should create smaller gatherings closer to home in order to hear the teaching. But that only works if the purpose is actually the learning. Ultimately, Maimonides argues the emotional impact of being together in experiencing the king reading the Torah is the purpose of the commandment. Our sages seemed to understand the power of the communal experience. They understood that the impact of the Torah was likely to be higher when people connected not only to the text, but also connected to other people. I've been thinking a lot about the power that connecting, other people, connecting with other people holds in our lives. Human beings are hardwired to connect with others, dependent on eye contact and touch for communication and safety. As children, we develop psychologically and emotionally through interactions with others. Babies mimic the smiles of those around them, for example. Our ability to speak, to regulate our emotions, to love, only develop with real-life social interactions and strong, positive connections to our clan. One study showed that NBA teams, where the players engage in touch, fist bumps, high fives, chest bumps, head grabs, leaping shoulder bumps, team huddles, those teams had higher individual and team success. Neuroscience supports these observations. Mirror neurons in our brains are stimulated when we're interacting with other people. 
Literally, when you are speaking with someone, pathways in your brain light up to mirror the emotions and the behaviors that the other person is conveying. In other words, connecting with people is not just a nice idea, it's essential to our growth, our development, our fundamental well-being, and NBA championships. And so when we think about depression, when we think about anxiety, when we think about loneliness and isolation, when we think about our overall well-being, being connected to others, being part of a larger whole, is the single strongest predictor of happiness that we have. I want to stop and offer a disclaimer before I continue. Mental health ailments are real and often are related to biology outside of someone's control. I am not saying that we can will ourselves out of a mental health illness any more than we can will ourselves out of a physical health ailment. These are real biological challenges and people suffering should seek professional care. What I am saying is that just as we know the habits that are likely to set us up for a healthy physical life, we know the habits that are likely to set us up for a healthy mental life as well. I'm sharing that the conditions in our world can cause these feelings in people even when they are in otherwise good mental health condition. And there's plenty of research to show that connections with others is the single greatest antidote when buffering ourselves against the outside forces in our world. So let's figure out what does that mean to be connected or to be part of a larger whole. Going back to my TV show binging, I do think it's important to distinguish that there is a difference between being alone and feeling lonely. While there's some overlap, they're not interchangeable. Many of us, probably all of us, need some time alone. Introverts or only children might need more than the extroverted person who has eight siblings, but we all need some time to ourselves. John Cacioppo, a researcher from the University of Chicago, has devoted his professional work to the science of loneliness. He speaks to many people's misconception that alone and loneliness are synonymous. He shares basically the idea, basically the idea there is that loneliness can be cured by putting people together, as in if they're not alone, they won't feel lonely. Colleges think this, which is why there are mixers. You remember mixers in college? They don't work. Being with others doesn't mean you're going to feel connected, and being alone doesn't mean you're going to feel lonely. So we should not confuse being alone with loneliness, nor should we assume that someone with many social connections is never lonely. On this topic, Cacioppo shares, oftentimes, fewer connections is better. The classic case is the billionaire who sees that everyone wants to be their friend but in the billionaire's eyes, none of these are effective because they're seen as being motivated by material gain. So what does it mean that social connections can be the antidote to depression, anxiety, isolation, and loneliness? Ultimately, connection does not mean that you're always surrounded by people, nor does it mean that you let everyone in. I would offer that being connected and being part of a larger whole is about intentionally choosing and cultivating the people and community in your life. Judaism and Jewish ritual is one way that we can feel bigger, part of something bigger than ourselves. Dr. Christine Carter, in her book, The New Adolescence, writes about how connecting humans with a larger purpose or meaning helps to ground us. She writes, people who are connected to a higher power tend to be more hopeful, resilient, and engaged. They get along better with others and report higher overall well-being. Moreover, they're less depressed, anxious, bored, and lonely. 
This makes sense to me. When we attend a Na'ila service at the end of Yom Kippur, standing in front of the ark, feeling faint, feeling the pangs of hunger, we may feel connected to the people around us who are going through this communal experience. We may feel a deeper connection to God. When we attend a shiva and we enter a house to comfort a mourner, we become part of a community with a common purpose. And when we debate our favorite kind of cholent, we create a common language with others. Each of these experiences rooted in tradition and culture and religion help us to connect and to feel part of something bigger than ourselves. We also need to cultivate different kinds of relationships. Dr. Juliana Brennis is a social and health psychologist who argues that the best way to have connections with others is actually by building four layers of social connection. Online contacts, professional networks, close friends, and significant others. Our online connections give us opportunities to give and receive practical advice, emotional support. There is a reason that LA Mommy's group on Facebook has so many members. I also think about the connections I have online. While I don't keep in touch regularly outside of Facebook with many of my friends from previous phases of life, I do feel connected to them when I see photos of their children from the first day of school or they post about a new job that they're starting. These connections can make us feel good. The second layer, the second level of connection is professional networks. These connections can be challenging because we might feel that they're transactional. I'm making the connection in order to network for a new job or to receive professional advice. But when we lean into creating meaningful relationships with these networks, there's something rich to be gained. Beginning in April of 2020, I had started Zooming with four other heads of school every Thursday at five. The call started as a way for us to exchange ideas and advice on how to run a school in a pandemic, but now they're a deeply valuable part of my week. We no longer have as many urgent questions about public health protocols, but my head of school huddles are an invaluable source of connection through my professional network. I have actually ne never met any of their partners. I don't know all of the names of all their children, but our connection as some of the only other people who really understand the experience that we have each endured are real, and they're a true booster to my mental health. The third kind of social connection is close friends. Friendship helps us meet our need for belonging, our need to feel known and appreciated for who we are. Having close friendships is hard. It's hard for adults to trust new people, and it's challenging sometimes to find time for friends when you're in the throes of juggling work and parenting and life. And yet having friendships is key to our mental health. It doesn't mean you need lots of close friendship. While most research indicates that having three to six close friends is probably ideal, researchers also acknowledge Going from zero to one is where we get the most bang for your buck, so to speak. As you consider the role of friendship in your own life and whether you have the right balance, Dr. Marissa Franco, who's the author of Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends, recommends we ask ourselves if we're lonely. If the answer is yes, maybe you need more friends. She offers that we should consider if there are parts of our identity that feel restricted Different people bring out different parts of ourselves. She writes, if you feel like your identity has sort of shrunk or you're not feeling quite like yourself, that might indicate you need different kinds of friends. 
She offers that sometimes it's easier to start by rekindling old relationships that have fizzled. And finally, she advises we should not spend time with friends about whom we feel ambivalent because they're unreliable, critical, competitive, or any of the other reasons people could get under our skin. Close friendship should be a source of good in your life. And finally, the last level of connection is with a significant other, which can be a romantic partner, but can also be a best friend or a family member. Significant others are the first people we turn to when we're suffering, and their support can help not only our mental health, but also our physical health. And when done right, the relationship with a significant other should give us a closeness and an intimacy that even 10,000 Twitter followers might not provide. The argument that she makes is that all four of these levels of connection are necessary. Online, professional, friendship, significant others are all part of the picture. She writes, from our closest friends to our most distant social media contacts, the strong and weak ties that make up our social capital provide the bedrock of our social and professional lives and have the potential to shape our health and happiness in dramatic ways. It's been a tough few years to be in this world. Someone on social media this week posted that while they felt terrible for the people of Florida, it felt nice to have a news event about which we could all agree. So that's the state of our world, cheering for a Category 4 hurricane. And I don't see the external conditions of our world are likely to change anytime soon. Social media will continue to influence our feelings of self. Current events will continue to give us reasons for despair or anger. The world will continue to serve up forces that inspire anxiety and depression. And yet we have the greatest antidote in our control. We have the ability to create connections, to live in community, to immerse in ritual, and to be part of something bigger than ourselves. We have the ability to lean into old relationships that we want to bring back, to grow a relationship from an acquaintance to a close friend, to be part of a community in celebration or in mourning. We can participate in group experiences as Maimonides urged, recognizing that sometimes the process, designed to help us feel part of something bigger than ourselves, is more important than the outcome. Unless we are dropped in the middle of Patagonia with just a knife, a tarp, and a string, one of the most helpful things we can do for ourselves is to seek these opportunities. And if you are dropped in Patagonia with just a knife, a tarp, and a string, make sure you collect the local native plantains in case you get bit by a spider. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.